Money FM 89.3. Best of breakfast. Morning shot. Good morning. Welcome to Morning Shot. I'm Lin Lee. Now, oceans produce most of the oxygen we breathe and reduce carbon emissions that fuel global warming by absorbing carbon dioxide. This makes them increasingly critical in our fight against climate change. Yet, only 1% of the vast oceans are protected. But that's set to change soon. After more than 15 years of discussions and negotiations, the UN has finally adopted the first ever High Seas Treaty. And that treaty is aimed at conserving marine life and restraining harmful activities across the two-thirds of the ocean that lie beyond national jurisdiction. It is a milestone for iconic marine species like Whales, sharks, turtles, tuna, they all range freely between national waters and the high seas. But how challenging will this be to govern? To help us understand that, we are joined by Professor Aaron Ryan, Associate Dean of Environmental Programs from the College of Law at Florida State University. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Thank you. It's great to be here. And also with us this morning, Associate Professor Simi Payne from the Department of Human Ecology at Rutgers University and the School of Law, Camden. Happy to have you with us, Simi. It's great to be here. Thank you. Now, Simi, to start off, you sat through the entire two-week conference and for the 38-hour final session, personally, when the final wording of the treaty was agreed on, how robust were the negotiations? Um, I Actually, if I may, I first would like to say thank you to Singapore because it is Singapore who gave us the president of the negotiation, Rena Lee, mm-hmm. and the important tradition of Singaporean diplomats, Ambassador Tommy Koh's skillful diplomacy mm-hmm. was responsible for the final adoption of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea in 1982, which is the underlying agreement for this. To answer your question, the negotiation was very intense. It was very robust. Um, Final decisions weren't made until the very end of the evening on Saturday, and the negotiation had been supposed to close on Friday at 6 p.m. Yeah, so there were some key issues that had not been resolved until this final, the final few days, and it was considered a package deal. So nothing was agreed until everything was agreed. Particularly difficult issues were the allocation of benefits from exploitation and uh, research on marine genetic resources. As you indicated, this part of the ocean is extremely diverse in creatures and different kinds of creatures, and there's a lot of commercial potential, as well as benefits for humanity in general. So sharing those benefits was a key issue. And state control over the environmental impact assessments, decisions about marine protected areas, how much it would be state control, how much it would be the international bodies that the treaty created. Mm-hmm. Uh, those were all key issues. Now, Simi, all of this has been in the works for more than 15 years. Enlighten us, why do these issues take so long before an agreement is reached? And are there observable changes you've noticed over the years? 
<laughs> Sometimes it seems like people just need to get exhausted enough to reach <laughs> a final agreement. Uh, but I think one of the key issues that happened since this was first discussed in 2000 and then in 2004, things started really happening at the United Nations until today, is that there has been a noticeable shift in both interest and understanding of the ocean and ocean life. There's a meme that the ocean in the room. And we have that now in a sense because we have more scientific information, including high quality imagery that makes the complexity and diversity of life in the ocean, including the deep ocean beyond sunlight's reach, uh, very vivid to us. Erin, I'd like to bring you into the conversation. Given how vast the oceans are, what challenges do you foresee when it comes to policing and execution of the treaty? Well, you're exactly right. The vastness of the ocean is both why this treaty is so important. And I join Professor Payne in thanking Singapore for its leadership in bringing the, nation, the, world's, the nations of the world together. But the challenges have to do with how difficult it is to know what's happening on the high seas. As we know, the high seas are already... They're so hard to watch. They're so hard to police that we have long struggled with governing fishing, even under the existing UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. We struggle with issues of human trafficking and slavery because we just can't see. We don't have enough. You can't have boots on the ground in the water. And we don't have the technological capacity at the moment to monitor it as well as an agreement like this um, would certainly benefit by. And the enforcement problem is equally difficult. The high seas, by nature, they are the ultimate public commons. They belong to no one, which is why it's so important for us to come together with some governance rules to protect them. But it also means that there's no one to go to when someone is breaking a rule. First, you have to know that the rule is being broken. Then you have to show that the rule is being broken. Then you have to essentially mm. get agreement by the rule maker to change their behavior because our international enforcement, while we have some tools, um, they are certainly uh, porous. It's so true how you said there are no boots on the ground in the deep seas as the deep seas are often shrouded in mystery because of how difficult it is to conduct research in those habitats. So based on what you've heard from scientists, can we reasonably tell how much underwater biodiversity we've lost and how can that be translated into how policies are shaped? So uh, Simi will certainly uh, be able to speak to this as well, but my understanding is that we estimate only something like 3% of the world's oceans remain in pristine shape, meaning human mm -hmm. intervention has already significantly modified the vast majority of the oceans, leading to an increasing risk of species extinction, not only from over-harvesting through fishing, but through the activities of deep seabed mining that can disrupt environmental conditions in the water column, and from the human contributors to climate change that is changing the temperature, the acidity, uh, the oxygen levels, and other factors in the, in the ocean ecosystem. So the oceans are under tremendous pressure. And the hope is that by creating uh, policies in this new agreement to assess the potential damage of human activities, one of the most important contributions of the treaty is the requirement of the environmental impact assessments before actions that could harm the ocean or contribute further to this destruction are undertaken, and the creation of large-scale marine protected areas that would limit the amount of human exploitation in order to protect the biodiversity that remains to us. Simi, your thoughts? 
absolutely agree with Professor Ryan, and I would add that it's particularly difficult if we if there's some kind of damage on land, someone chops down a tree they weren't supposed to chop down. It's easier to restore that land than it is the ocean. There's very little we can do to recover from damage to the ocean. So our best approach is prevention, and that's through the tools that Professor Ryan just described. Okay, Erin, the treaty extends not just to the water column, but to depths of more than 200 metres to the seafloor itself. How much of a turning point will this be for the fight against deep sea mining, which has sparked much fierce debate over the years? Yeah, it's a really interesting and certainly a hopeful feature of the agreement that it requires environmental assessment before activities like deep deep sea bed mining could continue. The complication is that there are already environmental, uh, there's already an agency under the UN Convention, the International Seabed Association, that already prescribes some kind of review for, for deep seabed mining. But this agreement prescribes more rigorous review, and it, re- it requires this review to take place sooner in the process and to account for indigenous sources of knowledge as well as the best scientific um, information, which is a change from existing requirements. So there is a possibility that this agreement could, could contribute stan- substantially to generating public information about how these activities could harm the sea and provide support for public opposition where that is appropriate. On the other hand, we still have to contend with how these environmental impact assessments will affect actual decision-making. That's a part of the agreement that is vague for the reasons that we discussed earlier. We don't have great infrastructure for policing and enforcing, and the decision on whether to act remains with the party with jurisdiction, even though they have to think about the environmental harms and theoretically under this treaty mitigate them. It's still up to them to decide ultimately how they're going to proceed. Now, Simi, the UN adopting this first ever high seas treaty, of course, is not a, a done and dusted thing. A minimum of 60 countries need to ratify the high seas treaty for it to come into force. So once it's ratified, what are the immediate next steps you feel need to be put in place as soon as possible? So we're looking forward. In fact, there's a step even before ratification that uh, September 20th, the treaty will be open for signature. And we're hoping that as many countries as possible, so that's about 193, it would be great if they all showed up at the United Nations in New York, pen in hand and ready to sign. Mm -hmm. Once that happens, as you say, uh, countries will have to go through whatever their national process it is required to ratify. And in parallel with that, so some countries will need to adopt new legislation to implement the treaty requirements. Mm -hmm. And in parallel with that, there'll be an international preparatory process, which will help design. It'll be based at the UN with the participation of states and civil society observers who have been engaged in this process for all these years. It will help design the institutions like the scientific and technical body, the implementation and compliance committee, procedural rules, 
capacity assessment for developing states, the measures to implement the marine genetic resources provisions. All of those things need to be designed and ready to go for when the first meeting of the parties occurs. And that will happen once that minimum of 60 countries has ratified that you mentioned. On the implementation side, on the national implementation side, a number of the civil society organizations like the High Seas Alliance and the group organization that I work with, the Intergovernmental International Union for Conservation of Nature, are going to be helping to analyze what specific regions and countries will need to do in the context of their national laws and also how this treaty interfaces with other treaties and other institutions, including the International Seabed Authority that Professor Ryan mentioned, uh, which deals with deep seabed mining, with the regional fisheries management organizations. Thank you, professors, for speaking with us and sharing your perspectives and insights into the UN adopting its first ever high seas treaty. Thank you. It's a pleasure Thank to you. be it's here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A W E D I O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.